Well, good evening. And thank you to Gareth and for David and for Nicola for leading us so far in our service of worship this evening. And thank you to you, especially for coming out on this, this cold uh, winter's night. I pray that our, all of our time together this evening would be a time of blessing and that God would speak to us uh, as we gather together. Before we, we turn to, to God's word, uh, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word that commits to writing so much of the truth about you. Father, we thank you for the truth that is contained in it, absolute truth that guides us throughout this life. Father, I pray that you would speak to each and every one of us tonight <coughs> through your holy word. Amen. Now, it might be helpful if you could keep the passage that Gareth read earlier to us together open. I think it was at page 351 uh, of the Bible in the pew, if you've, you've managed to close it already. I wonder, do you face the same dilemma on Christmas Day each year that we encounter? It happens around the middle of the afternoon. Now, I'm not talking about whether you take Gaviscon or Rennie's after maybe eating a bit too much for Christmas lunch. No, it's the battle, the battle that's usually fought in our house between the older and the younger generation as to whether or, not, whether or not to watch the Queen's Christmas broadcast or, or something a bit more frivolous. Now, in 1939, the choices that were open to the people weren't as many as they are today. As they crowded around their radios, or I suppose in those days it would have been wirelessness, to listen to the broadcast, the Christmas broadcast of George VI. Now, there might be a few of us, and probably just a very few of us here tonight, who might about, just about remember that Christmas broadcast. If you remember the circumstances, Britain had only a few months earlier declared war on Nazi Germany, as the German armies had swept across continental Europe, and by 1939, the Christmas of 1939, Britain stood alone, with the German forces only a few miles across the English Channel. What would the king say to comfort an anxious and a worried people? Well, the late Queen Mother had a, a favourite poem, which she showed to the king, written by an American lecturer, which captured the words that the king thought would be good to speak to the people. Some of you may be familiar with the poem. In it, a person at the start of a new year asks a friend that they would be shown what lies ahead of them in that year. And to do so, he asks for a light to show what would happen. But instead, he's given something which is much more helpful than a light. Let's listen to the words of a part of that poem. The poem reads as follows, it says, I said to the man who stood at the gate of the year, Give me a light that I may tread safely into the unknown. And he replied, Go into the darkness and put your hand into the hand of God. That shall be to you better than a light and safer than a known way. So I went forth, and finding the hand of God, trod gladly into the night. He led me towards the hills and the breaking of day. So heart, be still. I wonder how you feel as you enter into yet another new year. And perhaps you're, you're finding that you're content that life is good, and if so, rejoice and give thanks to God for that. 
However, I suspect that for many of us, as we think of the days that lie ahead, with all of the uncertainties that life brings, we may be anxious, we may be worried, we may be concerned. If we think globally, we think of issues that, 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 that could well concern us. We think of terrorism. We've seen it just over the Christmas period. How those people, some people are out to, to destroy society. We think of climate change and the, the difficulties that that can bring. On a national level, we see economic decline. We see antisocial behaviour. And what about in our own lives on a very personal level? Perhaps you have concerns that relate to, to health or to finances or to relationships. Concerns about your employment or, or maybe you don't have employment. For each of us, the concerns may differ. But essentially, they all boil down to the same thing. We worry about what the future may have in store for us. Now, at the start of this new year, I think we find much to help us with the concerns that we have as we commence again our studies in First and Second Kings. Tonight we're going to, to return to First Kings. You might recall we were studying that book uh, last autumn. Last autumn we looked at the first 11 chapters of Kings and we looked at particularly the life of the nation of Israel under their third king, King Solomon. And we saw there repeatedly, time after time, how God was sovereign, how he ruled over all of the affairs of that nation. And over the next few weeks, as we work our way through the remainder of 1 Kings and through the entirety of 2 Kings, we're going to see that truth reinforced time after time after time, that God is in control of all that happens, that he is sovereign, and that no detail of our lives is too insignificant for his attention. No circumstance is too great that he can't control it. We're going to see how even in times that look to us to be times of decline or times of despair, how God's will will reign supreme. Now I want us to turn tonight to the, the, the text that, that Gareth read earlier. And as I say, it might be helpful if you could keep your, your Bible open at that page. But perhaps before delving right into that text, Let's remind ourselves in very broad terms of the story of the Israelite nation so far. It's always important when studying the Bible, particularly when studying one of these historical books, to make sure we properly understand the context. As in so many things, context is everything. Now by the time we get to, to chapter 12 of 1 Kings, we're about 900 years before Jesus is born. Now, many of you may well know the story of, of Israel so far, but let's take an overview of it. About 2,000 years before Christ was born, God spoke to Abraham in his home in Ur. He told Abraham to up sticks and move many, many miles to the land, the promised land known as Canaan. And Abraham obeyed God and he travelled west towards Canaan. Now, thanks to, to Steve and to, to Paul and to Ricky, we've, we've managed to get the technology working. So we have a few maps just to illustrate where we are in the story. So you see Abraham moves from Tomanar into Canaan. If you remember the story, he moves briefly out Canaan into Egypt, but then back and settles again in the promised land of Canaan. 
Now, in due course, Abraham died and generations succeeded him, and eventually Jacob was born. And Jacob had borne to him 12 sons. Now, we know the story uh, well how his family were forced to move out of the promised land to Egypt, where they lived. And as generation passed from generation, the family of Jacob and his 12 sons grew and grew. Now once again, the the, the Israelites were on the move. This time they were led out of Egypt by Moses as they travelled through the desert back again towards the promised land. And eventually they entered it again under the leadership of Joshua. There they conquered the land and they occupied it. And they did so by dividing the land up into 12 tribal areas. One nation, 12 tribes. Up to this point in the nation's story, the people lived as a theocracy. God was their sole ruler. However, you might remember that due to the demands of the people, God allowed them to have a united monarchy, one king ruling over them all. First there was Saul, then David, and then Solomon, whose story we've already looked at. The theocracy had become a monarchy. Now, over the next few weeks, we're going to study together the history of the children of Israel under the kings who came after Solomon. Tonight, what we're going to see is we're going to see how the children of Israel, one nation under Saul, David, and Solomon, came to be divided how they came to be two nations ruled over by different kings. Now, as we talked about already, you'll remember that last autumn, we spent a number of evenings together considering the life of Solomon. We saw there how he came to the throne. We saw about his his great wisdom, how he constructed a, a temple in Jerusalem for the people to live in. And then finally, we saw his demise. In our studies in the life of Solomon, we saw time after time after time how despite the flaws and failings of humanity, and in particular the king, God would fulfill his divine purposes for his people. And as I've said already, and I make no apology for repeating it, we're going to see that time after time after time again in the rest of our studies in First and Second Kings. Now, by the time we arrive in in tonight's passage in chapter 12, Solomon is dead, and there's no king to rule over the tribes of Israel. Now, their constitutional arrangements weren't quite so sophisticated that as soon as the king dies, another one automatically succeeds. No, a process had to be gone through, and we've seen this already. Some of you with good memories might remember how when we looked at the life of, of Solomon coming to the throne, he did so by having to overcome the, the competing claim of his brother. We saw that back in chapter 1 of 1 Kings. And so on the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel have to meet again to establish who is to be king over them. And the story of how that comes about is the story that Gareth read for us earlier in chapter 12. Let's just run down those verses again and let's just pick out some of the salient points of that story. In verse 1 you'll see that Rehoboam Uh, The the man who wishes to be king, he travels north uh, to the the town of Shechem. And representatives of the various tribes of Israel meet together for some sort of a a constitutional conference to decide who should be king. In verse 3, as well as Rehoboam and and his representatives, 
Uh, he's joined there by uh, a man called Jeroboam. We're going to hear lots about Jeroboam uh, in future weeks. He had travelled to Shechem from Egypt where he'd been living in exile. In verse 4 you'll see that the conference provides a, a forum for the different leaders of the tribes to express some of their concerns about how they've been treated uh, under the rule of Rehoboam's father Solomon. And you'll see their concerns, they say, that they've had to endure a heavy yoke. Now we've seen earlier in our studies in First Kings what that heavy yoke was. There was discontent about taxation, about conscription, and generally about the way that people were, were treated. And the representatives asked Rehoboam, if you're to be king over us, would you lighten the load that we have to bear? We don't want you to rule over us in the way that Solomon did. Now in verse 5, we see how Rehoboam uh, reflects on this request. And essentially he asks for a few days, for three days, to consider what he should do. And then verse 6, you'll see the process that he adopts. First of all, he talks to the men who would have advised his fathers, his father, men who are, are probably now well-tempered and in years, they've had lots of political exposure and knowing how to govern. Look at the advice that the, the older men uh, give to him. They say to him, you are a servant of the people. Only if you act as a servant can you expect people to serve you. The advice of the older men. He then talks to the, the younger advisors, men probably of, the, of his own generation, they have a very different approach to the older men. They don't see any need for reconciliation. Rather, their rhetoric is designed to inspire fear. They urge Rehoboam to tell the people, say to them, you see it in verse 11, my father chastised you with whips, but I will use scorpions. Now let's pause for a moment to reflect on the very different advice that Rehoboam received, because I think it has much to teach us uh, about leadership today for God's people. Remember, on, the, on one hand, the older men encouraged Rehoboam to lead with a servant heart, but the younger men suggest that leadership should be based on power and on selfish motives, designed to benefit Rehoboam, but not the people. Now, there's no doubt that the, the nature of leadership in the Christian church has been a controversial one over many years and I suspect that's still the case today as churches grapple with how to organise their own internal affairs but it seems to me that this is a thing that is taught repeatedly through scripture and the teaching of scripture seems to me to be clear Jesus himself expressed how he understood the nature of leadership and he talked about how he saw his role he said in Matthew that he did not come to be served, but to serve. Time after time, the message emerges from Scripture that in God's economy, Christian leadership is to be servant leadership. Now, I don't want us to, to mistake this notion of, of servant leadership for passive or for weak leadership, avoiding taking difficult decisions. No, in the Christian church, leaders are called to exercise wise and godly leadership which often involves taking difficult decisions. But in doing so, their hearts must be motivated by a servant heart, out of a selflessness and not out of selfishness. I wonder, do we see that in the Christian church today? 
I hope we see it here in Kirkpatrick. Do you see people in all aspects of leadership who are willing to serve the people? People prepared to sacrifice and to seek nothing for themselves but to simply seek the good of others. When a decision is taken, perhaps it's not the one that you would have taken. Perhaps you feel annoyed or frustrated by it. But I wonder what a helpful approach be to analyse that decision and to ask yourself, what motivated the decision taker? Was it motivated by a selfish motive designed for themselves, to promote themselves? Or did they act with a servant heart? In my view, the teaching of Scripture is clear. True godly leadership must be servant leadership. And if we don't see that, I think there's an obligation on each of us to hold each other to account. One of my grandfather's uh, funeral, uh, funerals 20 years ago, uh, a tribute was paid to him uh, that he enjoyed the gift of admonishment, of gently holding others to account if they began to stray. I think that's incumbent upon each of us, as we're brothers and sisters together in the local Christian church, to admonish one another to explore our motives and to ensure that in all decisions that are taken, we act out of selfless and out of servant hearts. Let's return again to, to our text. Remember where we, we've got to. Rehoboam has got these two conflicting pieces of advice. The advice from the older men is to rule with a servant heart. The advice from the younger men is to rule with a dominant one. Rehoboam must decide whose advice he's to follow. And in the end, he chooses to follow the advice of the younger men. You'll see that in verse 14. He tells the people of his decision. He says, My father made your yoke heavy. I will make it heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Now when the, the, the tribes from the north hear uh, Rehoboam's decision they simply up sticks and return home they refuse to acknowledge Rehoboam's claim to be king over them and Rehoboam returns south only to rule over the southern kingdom of Judah the northern tribes they travel and return home north and in future weeks we see how they're ruled over by a different set of kings but just to complete the, the, the story at the end of our passage Rehoboam briefly considers raging war over the northern tribes to coerce them and to establish his authority over them. However, on this occasion, you'll see that he listens to, to wise advice. He decides against conflict and he returns home. And so for the next 400 years and for the rest of our studies in First and Second Kings, the nation that was once united, who had entered the promised land on a number of occasions and lived as one nation, will now live as a divided nation, living under different rulers and under in different circumstances, different names, the northern tribes known as Israel and the southern ones known as Judah. We're going to see in our studies in First and Second Kings how they lived under these rulers, but eventually, if you know the, the, the rest of the biblical narrative, the northern tribes will be exiled, never to return again to the promised land while the southern tribes will also suffer a period in exile, but then eventually return and find the society into which
which Christ will later be born. Now, as I said, we're going to hear more of, of, of that story in later, later weeks. How the nations of Israel, the two nations, will have their ups and downs, but generally we'll see a decline into godlessness. In our last few minutes this evening, I'd like us to reflect on one particular piece of the passage that we've, we've already looked at. I'd like us to reflect on the seemingly free choice that Rehoboam had made to follow the advice of the younger men, advice which led to division and decline. Now, on one level, we might see that as a simple choice exercised solely by Rehoboam. Should he choose the younger men's advice? Should he choose the older men's advice? He chose the younger. I suppose he does what management consultants would, would encourage us to do when we, we come up with an issue. He, he gets advice from different quarters. He weighs up the pros and the cons. And then he reaches what seems to him to be a, a sensible and a reasoned decision. However, scripture tells us, and our text tells us tonight, that there may be other factors at play as Rehoboam arrives at his decision. It tells us that Rehoboam may not be just as free at arriving at his decision as we might first imagine. I want you to look again, particularly at verse 15. Look at verse 15, and you'll see there that the writer tells us the decision Rehoboam arrived at, or as he puts it, this turn of events wasn't simply a human decision taken by Rehoboam, but was from the Lord to fulfill the words that God had previously spoken through the prophet Ahijah. Now, if you wanted to look at that prophecy later, you can find that in chapter 11, from verse 29 uh, onwards, where Solomon, Rehoboam's father, is told by the prophet that because of his ungodliness, the kingdom, the united kingdom, of Israel will not be ruled over in its entirety by Solomon's son, but it will be torn in two. So a long time before Rehoboam reached his decision, God had already proclaimed through the prophet exactly what would happen, that there would be division. So when we get to chapter 12, and Rehoboam has to decide between the advice he was to follow did he really have free will to decide what he would do? Or was that decision, in fact, already preordained by God? Now, this, of course, is a, an example of a question which has troubled many people uh, over the centuries. Is God the sole controller of all things? Or can mankind influence the events of history? I think it's important for us to reflect on these things ask ourselves, do our actions and decisions have any real meaning? Or has God simply already ordained all that is to happen? Now I suspect this is a subject that we could discuss endlessly. But I want tonight, just in the few minutes that are left, to summarise what I think the teaching of, of Scripture is to be. Now I don't want to, to, um, to dupe you in any way and to pretend that this is easy stuff. I think it's difficult stuff that really stretches our minds, but it is important. Firstly, I believe that God is the controller of all things. In 1 Timothy, we're told, God is the blessed controller of all things, the king over all kings, 
and the master of all masters. The teaching of scripture seems to me to be clear. God is the sovereign ruler of all. And yet, scripture also teaches us that God has given each of us the freedom to make decisions that affect our lives and the lives of others. Now these two concepts seem at first glance to be mutually exclusive. How can we be free to make decisions if God is in control of all that will occur? Now theologians have devoted lifetimes to trying to grapple with this issue. And if you read their works, I think you'll find they never really reach a definitive conclusion. But let me offer you tonight a way of thinking about these that I find helpful, and I hope you will too. It seems to me that we all, every one of us, have finite minds. To prove it, take some time to grapple with the issue of infinity. We're used to, and we can really only cope with something that we know has a beginning and an end. When we begin to think of how something has always existed or will always exist, at some point or other, our minds can't understand how that can happen. I think it's pretty clear. Each one of us has finite minds. And because we do so, we can't comprehend how an infinite being like God Almighty can do all that he can do. And I think it's for that reason that some things about God will forever remain a mystery to our finite minds. Now, I use the word mystery advisedly. I don't mean a difficulty, because a difficulty can be overcome with, with intellectual thought and with time and effort, a difficulty can be overcome. No, I use the word mystery because I believe that our finite minds, unless God chooses to bestow on us a higher intellect, will never understand a number of things about his character. And in particular, I don't think we'll ever fully understand how these mutually, seemingly mutually inconsistent beliefs that God is sovereign and yet man's free will can coexist. You might find this a helpful way to understand how it might just be possible uh, that, these, that, that mutually inconsistent things can coexist. Let's take the example uh, of a play. Um, let's take a Shakespearean one. In Macbeth, some of you may remember struggling with Macbeth at school. In Macbeth, Macbeth murders King Duncan. Now, who killed King Duncan? Well, on one level, Macbeth did. Within the context of the play, you read it, Macbeth killed him. And yet, on another level, Shakespeare, the author, did. For he wrote the play, including the part where Duncan is killed. So two concepts, two seemingly mutually uh, exclusive concepts, can coexist together. I believe it's impossible for us to reject either of these great truths that God is sovereign and yet that man is free to make choices. Rather, what I think we should do is we should embrace this mystery of these two coexistent truths and in doing so we should recognise who God really is, that he is not like us. We are finite, but he is infinite. He is God Almighty. Our response should be one of trust as we recognise God's sovereign ruling in our lives. 
that no one can jeopardize our future apart from the sovereign will of God. God will never allow an act to occur against us that's not in accordance with his will. And yet at the same time we must remember that because we have free will, we have choices to make in life and that God will hold us accountable for our decisions and our actions. So, did Rehoboam really have a free will to decide between the advice he was given or did God predetermine his actions? It seems to me that the teaching of scripture is both. This is a mystery which shouldn't cause us concern, but rather one in which we should rejoice in God's sovereign care for us, knowing that his plans are ultimately for our good. Now just as it was for Rehoboam, so it is for us. God is sovereign in all aspects of our lives. And that should bring great comfort to us, since we know his plans for us are good. And yet he has given each one of us free will. This week we have to make decisions and choices, and which there will be consequences for. And so as you stand at the gate of the year, 2010 with all its uncertainties its anxieties its fears do you seek to know with certainty all of the events that lie ahead for you or are you prepared to trust in God's sovereign ruling in our lives that all that will happen to me that all that will happen to you is under his control and that he will act for our good. I hope tonight you'll take great confidence from Scripture that the teaching of Scripture is that God is a loving God who is sovereign and who rules over all. As Gareth already said, tomorrow morning, maybe later this week, many of us will leave the security of our homes, our friends and our families that we've enjoyed over the holiday period and we'll enter again into a difficult and a hostile world. Only yesterday something arose uh, that on a human level should cause me concern. And to, one ex- to some extent it did. Something I can't do anything about until tomorrow. It's a battle for me to learn. Can I rely on God's sovereign willing in my life? And I suspect in many areas of your lives you'll face the same battle and the same struggle. But may we always keep in our minds throughout this year that whatever our circumstances are, that God is sovereign, that he is in control, and that we can trust him.